Okay, good morning, everybody. And uh, thank you, as always, for coming. Um, I'm assuming since I'm not getting frantic messages that um, everyone can hear me. Um, okay, and okay. since... Huh? Okay. Um, okay, so we're actually gonna... We're, uh, good morning, everybody. We're, we're just actually gonna start on time today because uh, it's only a half hour, half hour share and... Um, also, I think it's much easier to pick up than usual. So I'm going to share my screen now, and um, we'll just go for it. What I want to do today is just read a um, read a nitziv with you. I think um, for those of you who haven't studied the nitziv, the nitziv is one of the uh, most original um, commentators we have on Tanakh, um, who is fascinating because he works completely within a um, traditional framework on the one hand. On the other hand, he has no hesitancies about offering uh, radically original readings. Um, sometimes because he reads traditional sources to say the same thing, and sometimes because he has a marvelously, a marvelous notion of pshat and drash, uh, which as we'll see where he's willing to distinguish between 
the original meaning of the Torah as it was said by Moshe to B'nai Yisrael and what we call the canonical meaning, right? What that Parsha means once it's embedded in Torah. And in this week's, uh, right, in, in the text we're going to do this week, he melds those together in a really, what I think is a really fascinating and important way. And he also raises questions about the, the relationship between the rabbinic elite and the laity and, and how halacha should be structured in terms of whose experience and whose ideas, um, whose ideas control which areas. Uh, the one trigger warning is that the Nitziv, um really did not believe in uh, women's capacity to learn Torah. Uh, some of you may know this, that his second wife really did believe in women's capacity to learn Torah, and this seems to have generated a great deal of tension, at least in her life. Uh, and then there's a whole, a whole lot of scholarly discussion about the, ten about the extent and nature of that tension. Um, it's originally presented in um, the Torah Tamima's autobiography, Makor Baruch, then a version of it that is expurgated is printed by Art Scroll in a book called My Uncle the Nesiv. There's an outcry against even the expurgated version um, that is uh, that was that was produced, which uh, Art Scroll never withdrew. But the, I think the Lakewood Cater School that had ordered it as a freebie uh, was forced to apologize for it. Uh, but then there was a claim that uh, that um, the the original text Makor Baruch, which uh, which uh, which uh, generated the controversy itself, had a great deal of of was was questionable historically. So there was a whole, whole response about that, which I think the uh, most interesting thing is an article claiming that all the learned women in history that the um, that the, that the Baruch had listed as precedents for his aunt, whom he disagreed with greatly, uh, were uh, in a sense fictional, either fic um, fictional or their learning was fictional, but that there was an entire other list he could have cited. Any case, you should be aware of that whole background. Um, okay, so the, we're dealing with the opening of Last week's parsha. I'm sorry, I'm a week behind. Um, it says, So Moshe brought the whole Jewish people together and said to them, These are the things which God has commanded to do. Um, so whenever, <coughs> excuse me, um, I think even those who um, who believe in virtual media don't believe in virtual transmission. In any case, that was just a, a, a dust allergy. Okay. These are the things which God has commanded. So whenever the Torah says, uh, the Gemara you know, seems uh, correctly um, deduces, right? That Eilach means as opposed to others. Okay. So what are the things that God commanded? Do malacha for six days using the language of Teaseh. And the seventh day will be for you Kodesh Shabbat Shabbaton Lashem. Anyone who does Malachan, it will die. And Lo Savaru Esh Bechol Moshevosechem Biyom Priyom HaShabbat. So you know that um, this is the uh, famous Sadducee Pharisee debate whether Lo Savaru Esh Bechol Moshevosechem means that you're not allowed to light light a fire, or you're not allowed to have a fire lit. And we'll see what the Nitzit right, that we hold that you're not allowed to light a fire, but you're allowed to have a fire lit, and that's um, allegedly the origin of Cholent. And uh, and of Shabbat candles, uh, right? So whatever the right means. And then the second parsha, the second paragraph begins. And Moshe says to all of Israel, Here we have we have an Elah Hadvarim and a Zehadavar, and they talk about the uh, Shabbat and then the Mishkan. And the obvious issues are these are not the first times that Moshe has talked about. Uh, Shabbat or the Mishkan. So, what do we mean by Eila? What do we mean by Zen? Why are these commands showing up here?
Okay. So Nitzim says the following: Israel, So Israel, the um, Ramban says, is intended to make the gathering um, egalitarian. And it can't be that uh, it can't be that this is when he first tells them about the commands to keep Shabbos. Because we have a, a pasuk, uh, several prakim earlier, um, where it says that God, the Moshe said uh, to Bnei Israel everything that God had said to him, and that included Achid Shabbos Taitish Maru. So it can't be that this is that this is the first time Moshe tells Bnei Israel about Shabbos. And the next parsha also, it can't be that we're being a chronological in this, right? Well, it can't be that this is the first time that the Jews hear about the Mishkan. Because in the Kedirshan's parsha, it says you should, right, you should right, uh, do it, the Mishkan and its tent, the Chol and everything about that. Right? So that would be like, Talking about the time of Kriyachma without mentioning there is such a thing as Kriyachma. You're right. There has to be a background of uh, prior knowledge, and this text only makes sense against the background of prior knowledge. Elevate, right? So what? So what must this mean? Immediately after Moshe descends from Sinai, right? He goes through. Right? He tells him everything that happens through the golden calf. So now here, Chetziv sets up a um, a whole new structure of pedagogy. Um, some of you are probably familiar that the um, the way that the Rambam sets up the pedagogy of Meshera Benuch is that there are um, constantly uh, there are concentric circles. Moshe teaches larger and larger and larger groups, and um, everyone gets to hear it from him once, but then, the, right, but then the right the people who need to hear it most hear it right hear it most often, and right and their and their knowledge is supposed to radiate to everyone else as well. Um, so here, uh, as opposed to that kind of uh, as opposed to just thinking of it as purely you know that's the, the mechanical process of concentric circles, here the initiative says specifically in this case, right? What everything everything else that Moshe said was said only to um, okay, but now that Tzim says, despite you know, uh, we have we have a, a Jekyll and Hyde issue with Dorhamid Bar, where we see them either as the greatest people or as the simplest people. The Tziv, uh sees them as ordinary people in a sense. Right, even though right, sometimes we refer to the, to the Dorhamid Bar as Dordea because you know they had an experience of God unlike any other. But he says, you know what? Even in that generation. There must have been some Ameha Aretz. There must have been some people who just didn't really get it. And you know, he, does, and he includes women in that category. Uh, Kalva Homer, again, he really does not have a high opinion of uh, women's intellectual capacity. Uh, some other point we could uh, give a fun cheer talking about that it's even C.S. Lewis. C.S. Lewis's interpretations of Breshit, uh, both of which are not, um, do not presume great value to women's intellectual achievements. Um, and are strikingly parallel. Okay, um, so what happens? So the way the Chetziv sets it up is that the Ameha Aretz 
um, don't have access to Moshe directly at all as a pedagogue. Moshe teaches the people who are capable of understanding him, and then they go out and they teach the people at a much higher level of generality. Ata, but now he killed Kolhoidan Hashim and Hashim. Now he puts everyone together. Viziram al Shabbat Nosafel Piachet Shabbat Taitishmaru. Right, um, right. That's the um, right. That right now. Now he teaches them something uh, additional. Right, sorry. Now he teaches them something uh, about uh, about Shabbat additional to the to what he said in Achir Shabbat Taitishmaru. That's what, what God is saying now. You should speak to B'nai Israel. Right? So God previously commanded Moshe and said, you must speak to B'nai Israel these things. And that means that God tells Moshe that you have to teach these things, right, these things specifically to B'nai Israel. Okay, so now Moshe Obeying God's um, God's command, last part of Ber El Kol Bnei Yisrael, Moshe now brings the whole community together to hear his words. But the problem is that Moshe is not used to teaching the whole community. Moshe is used to teaching an elite group. And why does God want him specifically to tell everybody these things when, in fact, Moshe is better suited, perhaps, for teaching the elite uh, the the um, the the um the elite parsha and here Hanetziv says something happens. Al Kain nafal bezuha parsha deot bnei adam ameha aretz sheinan galacha. So what happens is that because Moshe Rabbeinu is teaching this um this group of uh, of of untalented uh, people or uninterested whatever it may be they misunderstand right nafal bezuha parsha right they're they're Landed in this um, in this parsha, they open Adam Ameha Aretz, right? Opinions of human beings who were right, who were not part of the intellectual class, Shainan Kalacha, and those interpretations of this parsha are non-halachic, right? There's not the way that the rabbis understand the law. But Vilohinian Moshe but Moshe Rabbeinu, and the Tzivus says this deliberately. Moshe Rabbeinu deliberately chose not to dispel these errors. So this is right, an amazing claim, as opposed to a notion that we have a an absolutely perfect Masoret, and Moshe Rabbeinu heard it from God, and he conveyed it perfectly to everybody else in terms of Tarasha Balpeh. And the Tzivus says at the very beginning, when Moshe Rabbeinu spoke to the whole community, there were misunderstandings, and he did not dispel those misunderstandings, and therefore those misunderstandings of Torah, right? The understandings of Torah that do, are not the halacha enter into the Masoret. But now he says, But since this parsha is written in the Torah, So when Moshe Rabbeinu said it to B'nai Yisrael, that, right, it was subject to misunderstandings, and his assertion is that Moshe Rabbeinu did not dispel those misunderstandings. When it's written in the Torah, it's not written in the Torah for the Meha'aris, it's written in the Torah for the Chachamim. And therefore, if we have to, right, as, uh, if we ask what mode of literary interpretation should, should we adopt with regard to this Parsha, the answer is we should understand this Parsha the way that the intellectual elite understand it. But he says there's still value to remembering what he would call the Pshat in the sense of the meaning of the words as they were delivered to the original audience as opposed to the meaning of the words as right once they are 
uh, once they're adopted in a, right, once they're placed into a book. Um, okay, that was on. Um, okay, there's a risk that I'm going to lose power again, which is very, very bad. Um, I'm going to, sorry, I'm just going to fiddle with, um, with things briefly to make sure that works. Uh, if I lose power, then, um, then please don't despair. I'll be back up in five minutes with a different device. Um, my fault. Okay, um, so far good. Okay, so now the um, now that Siv goes on, and now I have something I can't fix. Uh, okay, um, okay. So now that he starts analyzing the parsha on its own, Elahadvarim, right? These are the words. So Mashukvar Pirashti Lochem, right? So he says, what does Elahadvarim mean? These thing, these things which um, which I commanded you about before, and that leads Nitziv to a fascinating interpretation of the first pasuk, as opposed to saying. Uh, right, that the reader, reader of the parsha is Moshe collects the whole Bnei Israel together and he says to them, "These are the things which God commanded. Here's thing number. Here's thing number one. So he says that doesn't make any sense because um, he already told him about Shabbos. And Siv reinterprets this to mean those things which I already told you about, you must do for six days. Right? So Elad Varim is not right. Doesn't mean that new content is coming. It means that we're qualifying." Means that we're qualifying the old content. Okay. Um, okay, I'll go back to where we were. Um, oh, sorry. Okay, so now what, is, what does that mean? So, so he tells you in Parsha Kisisa, uh, it says Yeosemelacha as opposed to Teosemelacha. And he thinks that Yeosemelacha means that, it should be, that it's focused on the Osemelacha, on the people. Whereas Teyase refers to the work itself. Bimkain, right? So therefore he says, if we shift from Yeyase to Teyase, um, right, and we say that six days Teyase melacha, that means on the seventh day that melacha cannot be done. So Bimkain nitan lavin, shafil hatchil b'melachav yagamer b'atzbo b'shabas kodesh, demutr alpid din Torah, mikol makom b'maseh mishkan asur. So another radical kodesh. Once we've, he said, those things I talked to you about before, can only be done six days. So what things did he talk about before? Not Shabbos, right? That's the, right? What he, what he said, I told you before that you have to build the Mishkan. So now I'm telling you that the things to build the Mishkan, it's only, right, the thing to build the, right, about Shabbos generally, I said, yeah, which means I only ban you from doing things. But about the things I was telling you before about the Mishkan, there the rule is teya So for the Mishkan, you can't even do Right, begin work on Friday and have it extend into Shabbos. Right, so in a sense, right, the Sadducee interpretation of Los of Aruesh, which we'll pick up, is correct, but it's only correct for the construction of the Mishkan. It's not correct for the. It's not correct for general Hilchot Shabbat. Right, Why? Because it's not consistent with the honor, the dignity of the Mishkan, to have the the spirit of Shabbat, right, violated, even if that spirit does not in any way occasion halachic transgression. So that, right, that's a radical idea because uh, let's, right, this is an issue that comes up um, now, right, you know, the, let's, let's start with the, the question about whether you can start a melacha on, um, start a melacha on Friday and continue on Shabbos is a machlokas be'shamay be'shelo, and we hold Right, and we hold like Basilo that you're allowed to, right? And again, that's right. Um, so we allow Milachot, right, not just lighting a fire, 
but we allow other malachot, right, which are where the process is not complete yet, to happen to start on Friday and then continue autonomously on Shabbat. The Tziv says that's correct for Shabbat generally, but it's not correct for the Mishkan because there's a note right, because the spirit of Shabbat is not defined just by the actions of human doing of human beings. It's defined by an overall atmosphere, and human beings are commanded things to maintain that atmosphere. And normally, we don't define right. We think we define Shabbat halachically, but for the Mishkan, there's still this super notion. This is, um, I think, you know, I thought this is the debate about Shabbos clocks, where uh, the Chassam Sofer, when the issue of Shabbat clocks first came up, um, where the idea was uh, lighting a very long, lighting a very long fuse before Shabbat that would get to kindling under a coffee pot. On Friday nights, you could have had hot coffee on Friday nights. You lit the fire uh, before Shabbat, but it would lead to the uh, lead to the coffee being um, being hot on Friday night, even uh, even though you only start warming it up in practice after Shabbat. So the Chassam Sofer said, "What's the big deal? Obviously, God doesn't care about what happens on Shabbat. He cares about what people do on Shabbat." Viharaya, and according to many people, non-Jews are commanded to do melacha on Shabbat. So obviously, God wants melacha to be done. He just doesn't care about who does it. And the Tzivah seems to think that no, there is a concept of kushat Shabbat that can be mitchalel, right? That can be desecrated um, by actions, even if those actions are not in any way a violation of halacha. And he has an example, he quotes a, uh, a toast for to suggest that it's prohibited to bury the dead on Shabbat, even by Amir Lenachri, because it's a disgrace to the dead to have Shabbat done, have Shabbat violated for their burial. Right? So that, that's a, an interesting notion. You have to look at that toast for and see what's going on. Okay, but now he says, Yelachem Kodesh, right? So the, the, the language of the Torah is it should be holy for you. Yinhagubo Kedusha, meaning that we should treat it with holiness. Kol echad lefi erko. So he thinks the word lachem, although often the word lachem is understood uh, halachically to mean that you have to bring it of yourselves. Here he treats lachem as it has to match your, right, your subjective notion of what holiness con- consists of, even if your subjective notion does not correspond to halacha. So he says, "Amikan hinhigo ameha aretz bo kedusha, shulo daber bo sheker." So, right. So the common people listening to Moshe heard Yelachem Kodesh, and they imposed their own conception of holiness. And their conception of holiness was, "You're not allowed to lie on Shabbat." So now he quotes a whole, right, a whole fascinating set of uh, of um, questions, where he says, right, he says the Gemara, the Gemara in Demai says that you're allowed to ask in Amma Aretz um, on, if you, if you get Peros from, right, from an Amma Aretz who, right, who's not Ne'eman Allah Masrot, right? We don't believe that they take Masrot generally. And you forgot, you forgot to take Masrot on them before Shabbat. And so now you, it's Shabbat and you don't have, and you don't know whether you can eat them or not. You're allowed to ask the, the Amma Aretz on Shabbat and believe him. Why? He's usually not Ne'eman Allah Masrot. And the Rishalmi explains, not the only explanation we have, that Mithnei She'emat Shabbat Olav and the Bartanur explains that that means that think that the holiness of Shabbat means that it's not just about the laws of Shabbat, but that all laws, or at least a, a particular subset of laws that are not Shabbat specific, become more severe on Shabbat. So even though they'll lie to you during the week, they won't lie to you on Shabbat. The Hainim of Neshu Kodesh, right? And that's what that's because they're holy. And there's another Gemara where the Gemara says that Jews care about Kedushat Shriyat because the shame Kodesh Hamire Alameha Aretz. Alameha Aretz uh, are, 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 take the word holiness seriously. 
Right? So they think that doing any sin on Shabbos is a violation of its holiness. Um, and another thing they understand is, um, right, I should have put this on the other, on the, mar- the other margin. Another thing I may earth think is that you cannot benefit even from permitted, ob- permitted actions done on uh, Shabbat. And as Gemara explains that Yerushua actually put Yericho in Cherem, not because there was something intrinsic about Yericho that made it deserve being a Surabhana, but rather because he conquered it on Shabbos. Uh, right? And so we don't hold that Lahalacha, but uh, right, at least not, at least Deoraisa. So we hold it that way, Deoraisa, not Deoraisa. But rather he says, So Yerushua's putting Yericho in permanent Cherem was not a um, was not a halachic decision, but a concession to the popular concession, the popular conception of halacha, which is later embodied in a um, in a drabanan. And then he goes on to say, So the way he's reading it, even though it says Really means right. It's connected back to Elohad Varim, so it means that you should not um, that you should not light a fire um, for the construction of the Mishkan. What does that mean? It doesn't only mean that you're um, forbidden to begin the work of the Malacha. Sorry, that you're that uh, on Shabbat and have it continue autonomously on Shabbat. But even the fires in the in the foundries or the forges that you would just leave on on Shabbat, they're not doing anything. You're just leaving the fire on so that when you go back to doing melacha on Shabbat, you won't have to restart the fires. You're leaving the the power plant the power plant going, even though it's not producing any electricity over Shabbat. Um, right, that's what. That's what you understand in context. However, he says, but since, once again, that's what it meant in the original context to the people. But since it's, once it's embedded in the written Torah, so then anything written in the Torah acquires, any legal section written in Torah at least, acquires permanent meaning, and the permanent meaning can't be related to the construction of the Mishkan because the Mishkan is already constructed. Right, so therefore, it has to be interpreted kifi omek hadin. So omek hadin is an interesting phrase, and I'm not really sure what it means. The only thing that I that comes to mind immediately is that the Rashbam talks about omek hapshat when he's trying to talk about different meanings. And omek hapshat, according to the Rashbam, is what is the midrash halacha, as opposed to just the regular pshat, um, which it's not at all clear for Rashbam what the regular pshat is supposed to be. So the Nitzv says that once this is written in the Torah. Um, so we don't have to interpret it in accordance with its original contextual meaning, which is about the construction of the Mishkan. Rather, right? And so the Gemara records Why do we have right? Since we already have a prohibition against all melacha, and fire is included in all melacha, so why do we have a special lota say against lighting fire? So two possibilities. One is to tell you that lighting a fire is actually a more lenient prohibition. The rest of them. Uh, right, the rest of them are punished by stoning, but uh, havara, lighting a fire, is only pun- right, is only a lav and just or you know, just ordinary lashes. Or the or is to tell you that um, 
each of the 39 milachot is treated as an independent violation for the purpose of bringing sacrifices, and it's not that, um, and it's not that all of them are part of one big violation. Okay, so let's let's go to a uh, let's go to a sikum, and then we'll um, and then we'll uh, take questions. Well, the Nitziv says here, first of all, on a literary level, is that this parsha of Torah has three different legitimate ways of understanding it. First of all, it was said in original context about the construction of the Mishkan. So one level of understanding it is the construction is what does it tell us about the construction of the Mishkan? And the answer is it tells us about the construction of the Mishkan that you're not allowed to um, that you're not allowed to in the construction of the Mishkan you're not allowed to have any uh, any work continued autonomously and you're not even allowed to um, not even allowed to to leave things, uh, leave fires burning that are not contributing constructively to the construction over Shabbat. But then he says there's a second meaning, which is the way that the Ameha Aris in the crowd misunderstood uh, Moshe Rabbeinu, and that led to a whole set of um, general prohibitions on Shabbat outside the Melechad HaMishkan, uh, such as the idea that you can't derive any benefit from anything done on Shabbat Deoraita, uh, which we then again, you know, largely embodied Rabbanan with qualifications, and secondly, the idea that all, uh, right, that all prohibitions are uh, are more serious on Shabbat, and then there's the canonical meaning. And the canonical meaning, um, right, is different than all of those. Is right, is what actually the Deoraita right Halacha is on Shabbat. Now, here's the thing I want to suggest is that what the Nitziv doesn't tell you explicitly here is why does God insist that Moshe speak this way to Bnei Israel? If by speaking this way to Bnei Israel, he um, he leads to misunderstandings, and the answer appears to be that what's really important is that Moshe Rabbeinu says to Bnei Israel, "Yelachem Kodesh," and they're supposed to understand that as meaning that um, that they have to develop their own concept of Dushat Shabbat, and they're supposed to implement their own concept of Dushat Shabbat, and that it seems to me should have um, real consequences for the way in which we understand the concept of Shabbos Dik. Um, because the, uh, as opposed to thinking that Shabbos Dik is an elite conception in which we seek to impose uh, a, a rabbinic notion of what Shabbat atmosphere is supposed to be on the population, it sounds like, according to Nesiv, the whole idea of Shabbos Dik, which the Ramban develops from the word Shabbaton, but Nesiv here focuses on Lachem Kodesh, is that people are supposed to develop their subjective conceptions, both individually, I think, and communally. And that leads to both um, leniencies and stringencies. It leads to leniencies where there are things that might not appeal to rabbinic sensibilities, but, uh, but work for people. And I, my tendency has always been to Paskin and Shabbistic questions uh, in many ways subjectively. When you ask, is this a Shabbistic activity? So the first question you're supposed to ask is, what would you be doing instead? Uh, because often if you ban one kind of activity, you just end up, right, you're, you're just ending up taking, taking away the activity that people feel um, is consistent with, with Shabbat, and then you end up driving them into technicalities, which, um, and there are always technical loopholes that make things worse. And I just think the value is people are supposed to have an atmosphere of Shabbat. That's what you get from the Tziv. And it has stringencies, as the Tziv says, because there are all sorts of things that um, that the lady might believe, you know, that's really not Shabbos even though halakhically there are uh, there are loopholes to do for that. 
So that's right. That's my thesis: is that this is in addition to being a fascinating literary, uh, literary reading uh, and a way of understanding Chumash, it's also a fast. It's also a fascinating window into the way in which certain halachot should be understood. And then maybe the same way that the Ramban's um, divides Shabbos from Shabbaton, and um, you know, and that's part of his whole model that all um, mitzvot of the Torah have penumbras. They, you know, holiness has a penumbra uh, because of Yisem Kedoshim. And ethics has a penumbra because of Vasitim Atov Ashar. Maybe the Nesiv would also think that all of those, there's a lot of space for thinking about um, public, uh, right, public perceptions of the right, of the right and the good, or pub, or right, or intuitive conceptions of the right, of the right and the good, as opposed to uh, formal and top-down conceptions. Okay, that's the end of uh, what I have to say. Um, if there are questions or comments, I'm uh, happy to stay and uh, take them as well. I have a question. Sure. Um, how did the Nitziv conceive of himself and what he was doing? He clearly didn't have archaeological evidence for what he was saying. He was, he's making it up. It sounds like from, from pure cloth, he's making it up. So how did he see his process? How did he see the evidence for what he was saying? Uh, I think he thought that he was reading the text as simply as you could. I think he thought he was so straightforwardly. I think he just thought he was reading. What I, I'll you know, put it a, a general pitch of mine is that there are, there are creative people who are creative because they enjoy being creative and they're setting out consciously to be creative. And then there are creative people who don't understand that they're being creative at all because it's just obvious. The Nitziv is in the second category. Uh, right? you, you almost never find <clears throat> Nitziv being self-conscious of creativity. Uh, he almost always you know, says, you know, and it seems obvious to me, and he just goes ahead and, yes, I think that he looked at the Torah and he said, hang on a sec, this is redundant. How do I explain the redundancy? The only way to explain the redundancy is that it must have meant this, but I know the halacha doesn't mean that, and I know... That right, that there has to right, that the halacha has to be true. So the solution must be that there are two ways of understanding this text, and everything just generates uh, is just gener- generated from there. Um, that would be my that would be my take because I don't think he, I I think he also worked on the you know in large measure on the assumption that the Torah must be comprehensible to straight to to straightforward readers, and you should need archaeological evidence to get it right because we don't we don't have archaeological evidence and how could God have left us without archaeological evidence? If right, if you can't understand it properly without that, so he thinks it's a straight reading. Okay, and yeah. I just have a, have a comment um, just to bring it here. My father, Olav Shalom, worked very hard. He was an immigrant, started off poor, worked very hard his, all his life. But on Shabbos, he would set a, a Shabbos clock, and he would watch television right after benching, and that was his Onik Shabbos. And you know, it wasn't Shabbos, but that was his Tanug, and that was his his rest. And he did that every Friday. We all got it gathered together and watched Sergeant Bill <laughs> All right. So that's interesting. So I, I, I am not, uh, I am not a fan of campaigns. You know, I think they don't put it on a Shabbos clock and you look at it experientially. In fact, it enhances their Shabbat. So there are times when you need to make public policy and you can say, look, if it's your own Shabbos, but in fact, it will lead to mass fill Shabbos. So I'm t- right. Yeah. So I might feel a public policy need to oppose it. But if the per- right, if the person is living on a desert island, let's say, right, I don't know what the truth about li- watching television Shabbat. 
So the person is living on a desert island, and they say, look, this is what makes me, there's no violation of halacha, and this is my concept of Amik Shabbos. I don't see any reason we should oppose it. Uh, right? you don't, I don't, I don't, I don't uh, as I say, I think I, I tend to pass on Shabbos questions very, very subjectively. Um, and the only time I would restrain it is that, you know, is that sometimes it's clear that, you know, let's say, you know, if I, when I was in, when I was in uh, Hawaii, there was a famous scandal about um, televisions on Shabbat. And the response to the scandal was, you know, when, there, when people said about the people are violating Shabbat in the dorms, they said, we're watching it on Shabbos clock. <laughs> Right, and the response, you know, so let's assume that was true. But about Zidi Yeshiva, right? That's really the best thing you could do on Friday night is right, is watch is watch television. That's how you keep Shabbat. Right? I think it was probably not Sergeant Bilko, it was probably Dallas. <laughs> right, Dallas, right, Dallas is on Friday night, right? So I think you know there's another, you know, like that that um right, I know Shapiro always liked the phrase of being Mikarham Batya, right? You know, that that freezes the bathwater. Right, you know, because it's hard to it's hard to set up a Yeshiva Shabbos atmosphere when everyone next door is watching Dallas. I just understand why you oppose it, right? You know, because then other people will say, okay, I wouldn't put on a Shabbos clock, but it's on a Shabbos clock, right? And you get, you know, uh, you know, you know, another interesting, you know, place where that shows up is, you won't know, right? You know, every every year that a New York team is in the World Series, yeah, uh, right. There are always pictures of the of from Jews lined up outside television stores. If there's right, still are such things watching the World Series, yeah. um, uh, right? And that's uh, I know, you know, it's Chatayari Meskerio, maybe not, um, in um, 1980, right, is the is the original is the original Yankee Red Sox playoff game, I believe. Uh, right, the one game the one the one game playoff of the Bucky Dent home run, and you know and it was and it was on Rosh Hashanah, and I went over you know to my best to my best friend's uh, best friend's house and we sat in the lobby listening to the doorman's radio. <laughs> you know, and I think that you know do I you know do I think that would be a great thing for me to do as an adult? Maybe not, you know. But as a twelve-year-old, you know, I don't know. I don't, you know, it would have been a really rough end, end of not knowing what happened. What happened in the uh, in the in the playoffs? So, okay, I was underage, right? I was, I was bar mitzvah. That's a different. Uh, but I think people want, you know, people's probably people's yontem is enhanced by knowing, right, what happened in the World Series, and maybe even by having by getting to watch it for half an hour in a in a, te- in a television store. For many people, some of them would be learning otherwise, right, or doing tshuva intensely. Uh, so I think we should be very, very. I think the right way to paskin. Is with a deep attention to uh, to lay lay, sub, lay subjective conceptions of what enhances Shabbat. I think that's the right. And your father example is a great example. Um, you know, and Sergeant Bilko was funny. <laughs> <laughs> it's definitely funny, and I think uh, much more wholesome than Dallas. Uh, although certainly, you know, sometimes ribald as well. Uh, okay, are there other are there other uh, uh, other questions? I didn't watch it Friday night. <laughs> Uh, I watched it when I was shut in by the flu, whatever, for long periods. It was on, uh, it was on Channel 5 in the afternoon when you were sick. Uh, okay, other questions? Okay, thank you very much. I would, have been, I would have felt bad if there were no questions. So thank you for asking, Jerry. All right, good job, Good job, Good job, Next year is 9 p.m. But Sayyid Shabbos is going to be a little bit wilder. It's uh, Alachic Man Enters the Matrix. It's my first attempt at engaging with Rav Shagar. Uh, right, Rav Shagar has a whole thing about uh, the, the ultimate Jewish hero is Neo in the movie The Matrix. And so I'm going to compare that to Yishalacha. So it'd be very different and hopefully be a lot of fun. Have a great Shabbos, everybody. Rabbi, pay, yes. pay, pay attention to your camera. Like you, I don't see your face now. You're, far you're, back. Yes, you're right. Yeah, yeah. Okay, that's better. Okay. All right. Good Shabbos. Okay. Good Shabbos. Thank you.
Thank you and Shabbat Shalom. Shabbat Shalom. Shabbat Shalom. Thank you. Shabbat Shalom, Rick.